You may be seated. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be back in Acts chapter 15 together this morning. And we're going to continue. This is part three in our study of uh, the Jerusalem Council. I'll just go ahead and tell you we're not anywhere close to being finished. There's a lot in this chapter that I still want to continue to teach on. So we'll take another little piece out this week. And then, Lord willing, the next time I preach, we'll be back in the text again to mine out some more truth and apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you've called us from darkness to light. Your word says that we once were not a people, but yet you've made us a people for your name. Your word says that we were once far away, but yet through Christ you brought us near brought us into your family and adopted us as sons and daughters. Father, your word says that we were once strangers to the covenants, but yet through your word, you teach us truth and your spirit helps us understand the truth of what we're reading. God, we have to recognize from the very beginning of this moment where we study the word as a family together that none of us come to this moment and none of us have come into your family because of anything that we've done. It's all by your grace. So we just want to say thank you. And in response to the grace that you lavished upon us and you continually lavish upon us, God, we want to still our hearts before you. We just simply want to ask that you plow the soil of our hearts. Turn it over. Let the light hit it. The light of truth. Where there are things that are growing out of place in our hearts, God, may we confess that sin and get rid of it. Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Let us not lift up our soul to another. God, we want to love you, heart, soul, and mind, with every fiber of our being. So we just want to say thank you. come to this moment as thankful people we don't want to complain or be bitter or resentful or angry we just want to be thankful because we have so much to be thankful for and then father there may be someone here today or someone listening online that that prayer that I just prayed makes no sense to them because they're still outside of the family of God And if that's true of someone that's here today or true of someone that's listening online, the invitation is to come.
Come you who are thirsty. Come you who are weary. Come to Christ. So that's our prayer today, God. That we worship you in spirit and in truth. That your spirit illumines our minds and our hearts. That you save sinners. You strengthen the saints. You do it simply for the glory of your great name. Thank you that we can pray that prayer because of the finished work of Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen. So as we've been working our way slowly through Acts chapter 15, I think it was clear last week to us that this was really a critical or a significant moment in redemptive history for the church of Jerusalem. Not only for the church of Jerusalem, but really for the Gentile world. And I think we could extend that to the 21st century today. This was a really critical and crucial moment in time that the apostles and that the elders and that the various leaders, the church there in Jerusalem were able to navigate uh, this question that really came before them, which was, if you remember, really wasn't whether or not the Gentiles could be saved. But instead, it really was about what did the Gentiles need to do in order to be saved? Or how is someone that's not a Jew saved? How are they made right with the Holy God? And that's really what they're wrestling with in this moment in time. So we began to unpack that last week and, and really kind of took a long time just looking at the the situation at hand and why it was so significant and then if you remember we also took a few moments just to practically apply it by saying that we as a local church needed to follow the uh, example of the elders and the apostles and we needed to be able to lay out a distinction make a distinction between first level doctrinal issues and second level doctrinal issues and third level doctrinal issues and we talked about how a lot of times people make third level issues, first level issues, and make first level issues, third level issues. And at the end of the day, it's critical that a local church thinks through what's fundamental to the faith and, and able to hold on to those things without, without losing it. And so then we applied that back to the text and said, you know, really at this moment in time for the apostles and the elders, what's going on is they were wrestling with an issue that was fundamental to the faith, which is the gospel, okay? So today, here's my aim. My aim is to kind of move forward and look at the next section in this passage of scripture. And, and by doing that, I wanna do a couple of things. First, I wanna show you how Peter lays out evidence that these, that these Gentiles were actually converted, that they were born again. Second, I wanna show you Peter's conclusion to the question his answer to the question of how are the Gentiles saved? You know, one of the cool things about the text that we've been learning uh, in Family Connect is scripture interprets scripture. And so if you want to know the answer to the doc to any particular doctrine, where should you look? Look at the word of God. And so in our text, this question that they're wrestling with is how is a Gentile made right before a holy God? It's clearly answered in our text. And we'll look at that. It's very helpful. And then third, we're going to, along the way, try to make some applications specifically in regards to God's uh, providence. 
So with all that being said, look with me at, um, we're going to start in verse 6 this morning, and we'll read through verse 11. The Bible says in Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So let's look at what Peter lays out here as far as evidence for the Gentile conversion. The fact that these Gentiles were actually born again. And when you look at verse 7, after there had been some discussion and after there had been much debate, you'll see in verse 7 that Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And notice how he first addresses the crowd. What does he say? He says, brothers. It's easy to read over that, but it's probably worth us just noting that that's a very familial term. He's saying, brothers in Christ, family of God, those of us that have gathered, let's consider this matter together. It's not an antagonistic term. This is not us versus them. Amen. This is not trying to alienate and segregate and separate. This is a word that's trying to unite. This is a word that's trying to build unity because you have to understand. We have to remember there would have been a lot of tension in the room. Let's be honest. We all get very passionate about our convictions. Do we not? If I were to say Florida Gators stink. Some of you would find me after the service and have something to say to me. If somebody said the UNC Tar Heels stink, I would say, amen, praise God, hallelujah. Oh, sorry. Pastor Eric would find me after the service and say, I don't think so. NC State never wins. You're right. You get what I'm saying? That's very silly. But at a family gathering, what do we say? Stay away from what topics? Politics. Religion. Why? Powder keg in the room. Boom. Everybody's polarized. I'm being silly, but I'm trying to make a point. There had been a lot of discussion. There had been a lot of debate. There are a lot of strong convictions. If there weren't strong convictions, they never would have left Antioch and found themselves in Jerusalem and had to have this meeting in the first place. So Peter and his wisdom, being led by the Spirit, diffuses any tension by just simply saying, Brothers, you know we're family. We can work this out together by looking at the Word of God, right? So that's what he does. Now notice what else he says. 
And what he does here is interesting. He draws back on God's providence in the past. He says, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's drawing on two things. First, he's drawing on the fact that in the past, even Pastor Eric is awesome, God's providence, how the scripture reading that we read this morning fit this passage. Because we could back up, Andy, to what you read and how God called Peter on the shores of Galilee even before Acts 15. Isn't that awesome? So Peter's drawing back on the past. And in particular, he's saying, listen, God made a choice. Not only did he call me on the shores of Galilee, but he also called me to be a witness in particular to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to take a journey back in time with me to Acts chapter 9. Because this is what he's referencing when he says, you know, not only did God make a choice, but you know that it was through my mouth that the Gentiles heard the gospel. So go with me to Acts 9 and find your way to verse 31. And I'm not going to give you all the context and background, but basically, in a nutshell, the gospel has exploded across the face of the earth, exploding out of Jerusalem. They couldn't contain it. It just continued to reverberate further and further and further out. And all of a sudden, Gentiles begin to come to faith in Christ. And so when you look at verse 31, there's a summary that Luke gives us. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it what? It multiplied. It was beginning to grow. And so with that new growth meant that there needed to be shepherding. One of the reasons why Pastor Eric is now three-quarter time at Everglades, praise God, hallelujah, I'm grateful for that, is because growth that God has brought to our church meant that for our church family, we needed more pastoral care on a daily basis. Well, that's not new. That's always been true. God's people have always needed to be shepherded and always needed to be guided and always needed to be taught and always needed to be cared for. And we see that here in the book of Acts in chapter 9 as well. And so that's what Peter does. He begins to go out. And I've taught you this before. He begins to go out and check on all these new believers. And when he does, look at verse 32. He meets a guy named Aeneas. And if you remember in verse 32 and 33 and 34 of Acts 9. Aeneas was paralyzed and he heals him. Peter heals him. But I want you to key in on verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and what did they do? What does the text say? They turned to the Lord. Now this is interesting. I'm going to geek out for just a minute. But if you were to look at the Greek word there for turned, it's the same word that's used in Acts 15 to describe the Gentiles turning to God. Isn't that interesting? That's not by coincidence. God's inspired the scriptures. He's trying to tell us something. What he's trying to tell us is in Acts 9, these people that came to fight, uh, excuse me, these people that came to faith in Christ legitimately turned from their sin, turned from their idols, turn from their waywardness and turn to the one true God of the Bible. Right? And when you look at Acts 15, it's the same word that's used throughout. It's talking about how they turned as well. So 
there's a unity and a harmony in scripture. So anyways, Acts 9, that was my geek out moment. Acts 9, 35, we see these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. You drop down, there's another story that we've already studied, and it's the story of Tabitha. You'll see another word or another name for her named Dorcas. She passes away. Peter raises her from the dead by God's power. And I want you to look at verse 42 of Acts 9. And it became known throughout Joppa, and many did what? Believed in the Lord. Many people came to true saving faith in Christ. So now we have Gentiles coming to faith in Lydda, and Gentiles coming to faith in Joppa. And then when you go to Acts 10, we're in Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius. There's a man named Cornelius. You already know about Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. He was a God-fearer. He was a Jewish proselyte. And God's going to draw him and call him and save him through the preaching of, of Peter. But I want you to notice that God had already been preparing his heart, Peter's heart. Look at uh, Acts 10, verse 28. And you can read all of this to kind of catch up. Peter sees a vision. God's been preparing his heart. And this is what Peter says when he visits uh, Cornelius, verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God was working in Peter's heart to break down ethnic barriers so that he could take the gospel to those who needed it. He was transforming Peter's heart and life. And he was getting ready to transform Cornelius's heart and Cornelius's family and Cornelius's friends. And we see the fact that there had been many people gathered when you look at verses. Uh, let's see. Where was it? Verse 24, I believe. It talks about how. Um, Cornelius was there and his relatives and his close friends. So let's go over and I want you to look at verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Peter's getting ready to preach. So he opens his mouth and this is what he says. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So what's Peter saying here? He's saying, listen, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The gospel saves Jew and Gentile alike. He had already seen it in Joppa. He had already seen it in uh, Lydda. And now he's seeing the same thing unfold in Caesarea in um, Cornelius's life. Now, drop down to verse 44 of Acts 10. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So Peter preaches the gospel. These Gentiles are converted and an evidence or a sign or an authentic, authentic, authentication, if I can say that, of, uh, of their faith was that they were given the Holy Spirit. And if you went back to Acts 2, you would see that it was identical, almost identical. And it was done in that way 
to show, if you remember, I taught you this, to show that there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that every person that comes to faith in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to go to Acts 11, because Peter takes this and he reports this to the church at Jerusalem. So all these events happen in 9, all these events happen in 10, and Peter goes back to the brothers in Jerusalem, and in Acts 11, he gives them a report. Look at verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he, talking about Cornelius, and he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, now listen, this is why I told you it wasn't really about whether or not the Gentiles could be saved. They had already come to this agreement. They had already come to this conclusion. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now go back to Acts 15. Why did I take you through all of that? Well, it it's not really about a time filler, I promise. It's about contextualization, helping us see the story of the Bible and how we got from Acts 9 to Acts 15 and how these aren't separate stories that are just out there, but these are stories that connect by purpose and by design. They're all linked together. So what does this have to do with God's providence? Well, God's providence very simply is the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. The plan that he decreed before the foundation of the world. If that's true, and it is, then Acts 9 is clearly connected to Acts 15. Acts 9 is clearly connected to Matthew 4. Act, Matthew 4 is clearly connected to Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is collect, uh, connected before the foundations of the world. So I say all that to say this. Here's the application. Ready? Just say it already, right? Here we go. God had already been providentially working in the life of Peter, in the life of the elders, in the life of the church, in the lives of these Gentiles, to find a scriptural and biblical answer to the dilemma that was before them. Don't miss that. It wasn't as if they rolled up into this moment and said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? No, Peter says, brothers, brings the family together, breaks down all differing segregation groups, separation, brings them, unites them. Let's talk about this thing biblically. You know what God did. We already talked about this in Acts 11. I already gave you a report and you already agreed, did you not? That the Gentiles could be saved just like we could. He's saying, brothers, stop, think, go back. Remember, we've already talked about this. 
Why is that important? Well, let's just be honest with human nature, all right? When we get sideways on something, we don't think clear, do we? We don't. And a lot of times, if we're honest, there are things that we already know that are true. When we get sideways in our thinking or sideways in our heart, we just go brain dead. We have like spiritual amnesia. We're like, boom, I've never heard that before. What in the world are we talking about? We just forget the truth of what God said. And so what Peter is doing here, <clears throat> for those of you that are computer guys, it's like he's hitting reboot or gamers reset or old school people like me that don't really like any of those things. He's just starting over, right? He's getting back to the basics. He's getting back to square one. He's like, look, we've already determined this. We've already talked about this. God made a choice to send me. I preached the gospel and these Gentiles got saved. Now, let me give you a couple of things to think about with God's providence. This is important, right? A lot of times when we talk about God's providence, we really focus in on the dark providences, don't we? Naturally. Man, this is really hard. This is a really big trial. I don't know how we're going to make it through. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know how God's going to use it. Right? Those things, those are normal things we struggle with. And we need to be reminded that, yes, God is the God of the dark providences. And he will redemptively work all things out together for good of those who love him. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember that every providence is good. The dark providences are good. Miss Kim, forgive me for my poor English. And the not so dark providences are good. Right? The non-dark providences. We forget every providence is good. God uses the dark providences. But my goodness, he uses the good providences. Amen, somebody. Look. Was it awesome that Aeneas and those people came, that were in Joppa came, or uh, Lydda and Joppa came to faith in Christ? Absolutely. We'll see them in heaven. Was it awesome that Tabitha was raised and, and those other believers in Joppa came to faith in Christ through that? Yes. Was it awesome that Cornelius came to faith in Christ, his relatives and his household and other people that he invited? Absolutely. Here's my point. Sometimes... We can major on the dark providences so much that we lose sight of the non-dark providences and, and we need to connect the dot on both. That he uses both. That he uses both. We don't need to feel bad about the, the good providences or the, the non-dark providences. <laughs> I told Rachel I was going to work hard not to say the difference between good and bad because all providences are good. And I messed up. Anyway. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to argue for is that Peter draws back on good things that God has done in order to help find a solution to this issue before them. He's like, look, God's already saved these people by grace through faith in Christ. He says it in Acts 11. Who was I that I should stand in the way? Now, notice the evidence that he gives in the text. He's going to lay out some really, really helpful evidences for us in the scripture. Look back at verse 7. Jim, I couldn't help but think of what you preached about Paul in Romans 1. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Look at what Peter says. 
they heard the word and what did they do? They believe. This is the Greek word pastuo. It means to trust. It's talking about saving faith. Look at verse 8. God knows the heart. That's scary, convicting, and comforting all at the same time, depending on where you're at. If you're in the faith, that's comforting. If you're not in the faith, that's scary. That should get your attention. But God knows our heart. And look at verse 8. What did he do? Peter's drawing back on what happened in the past. What we read in 10, 44, 45. God knows the heart. He bore witness to them by doing what? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Pentecost, Spirit's given. Acts 10, Spirit's given. To all believers, the Spirit is given. What was the scripture that Eric read in the call to worship? Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. 13 and 14 tell us what happens when you come to faith in Christ. You are given the Spirit and sealed by the Spirit. And that Spirit, the Spirit of God, is a deposit guaranteeing that you will cross the finish line by God's grace. It's awesome. So what's he saying? The Gentiles receive the Spirit. The Jews receive the Spirit. Every person that comes to faith in Christ is giving the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty awesome. Brother Phil, this is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. That's what he's doing. Now look back at the text. He gives another evidence. He makes no distinction, Peter says. We've already talked about that. We talked about that last week from Ephesians 2. But look at the second half of the verse. Having done what with their hearts? Cleanse their hearts. Cleanse their hearts. Don't miss the Old Testament theology of the cleansing that needed to take place. That we need to be cleansed from our sin. This is why David would write in Psalm 51 verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me. Clean me up. Make me right at the heart level. This is why John would write in 1 John 1, 9. That when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every single person that comes to God on God's terms, he knows the heart. He changes the heart. He cuts out the heart of stone and he gives a heart of flesh and he knows what he's doing and he cleanses you from the inside out. We want a cleansing from the outside in, but it doesn't work that way. He cleanses us at the heart level. So back to the text. Think about these evidences again. They placed their faith and trust in Christ in verse seven. He gave them the Holy Spirit in verse eight. He cleansed their hearts in verse 9. By faith, by the way, we are responsible to place our faith and trust in Christ. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why? This is an echo back to Acts 11. Why? Why are you putting... Now, this is new. This is serious. 
Why are you putting God to the test? Why would they be testing God? Because they were coming up or debating or some people were teaching things that was against the gospel. We'll talk more about this later when we talk about the distinction between the law and the gospel. I don't have time to get into that this morning, but that'll be the next sermon from Acts 15. Because they were really wrestling with what's the relationship between the law and the gospel. So we'll come back to that. Nice little cliffhanger. Go back to verse 10. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And for now, all I'm going to say is this. Paul clearly teaches that the role of the law was to be our instructor, our tutor. All you teachers, Wednesday morning's coming. Coming for me too, Mr. Justice, coming for you. <laughs> We're teachers, we're tutors. What's our end goal? To help them learn more, to grow and mature as individuals. And a lot more can be said. What's the law's purpose? To help, to help us learn our need for Christ by showing us our absolute moral bankruptcy before a holy and righteous God, bringing us to an end of ourselves so that we have nowhere else to look but up to God. And crying out to him in repentance and faith. That's what Peter's getting at. No one, he's saying, has ever been able to keep the law. Why would we ask him to do what we've not been able to do since Genesis 1? Since the garden. Or Genesis 3, rather. Now look at his conclusion. This is so awesome, verse 11. So where does he land? Well, you probably already knew this before we even read it. But in this moment, this is helpful. He's rebooting, he's resetting, he's reorienting, he's realigning. In verse 11, look at what he does. He says, but we believe. Don't you love the collective word we? That third person pronoun, Miss Kim, that's collecting everybody together. There's no distinction. We will be saved. All of us Jews in this room, we will be saved. We will be saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as they will. It's interesting. Here's what he's saying. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved from the power of sin. We're saved. By grace. Not of ourselves, not of our goodness, not of our righteousness, not of anything that's in us or anything that we've done. We're saved by God's unmerited free grace. And that's the only way we're saved. It's interesting what he does. Is it not at the end of the verse? He's basically saying this. I'm going to bring it into today's world. He's basically saying if they ain't saved, we ain't saved. Good old Uncle Chevy way to say it. Here, Jimbo. They ain't saved. We ain't saved because we're all saved the same way by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So here's my question as we end this morning. Where are you at with this holy God? Have you truly placed your faith and trust in Christ? Have you truly cried out to him in repentance 
and cried out to him in faith. I couldn't make it more clear. I cannot improve on what God said. I would not even dare try to do such a thing. The Bible is very clear. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. My call to you this morning as we end and as we close is to do that today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Spurgeon said that tomorrow is the devil's day. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, but today is the day of salvation. You don't have to come up front. You don't have to do a song. You don't have to do a dance. You just need to cry out from your heart where you're sitting or cry out where you're sitting in your living room or in your car while you're driving, listening to this and ask God to save you, to cleanse you, to give you a new heart and to make you right with him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in your providence, you're the God of good providences, both dark and non-dark providences. God, help us understand and help us think that everything that we go through is not only for now, but for later. There's nothing wasted in your economy. And in this case, I can't help but rejoice. And in my heart, I get fired up when I think about the fact that you love the bride of Christ so much that in eternity past, you orchestrated events that they would be able to go back to in a significant moment of time and say, look what God did. Look how God saved. And it helped them to come to the right conclusion. God, give us greater faith in you that you've not left us, you've not abandoned us, you did not just forsake us, but when you save us, you keep us, you walk with us, you guide us, you protect us, you tend us, you are with us. God, give us eyes of faith and help us quit getting blown by the circumstances, whether they are, in our words, good or in our words, bad. Father, help us preserve the gospel and think clearly using wisdom and discernment. And then finally, God, I pray that you save someone today. You are so clear in Scripture. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You do not cast out anyone that comes on your terms. God, I pray, I pray, and I beg that in your grace that you save someone today. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we close by worshiping together with a song.